The FIR Podcast Network presents FIR B2B, an audio podcast that brings you the latest news and more in business-to-business communications. It's Paul Gillen with FIR B2B, episode number 26, uh, recording today out of uh, Eastern Massachusetts with my co-host, Eric Schwartzman. Hello, Eric. Hi, everybody. Um, we have uh, with us today, our guest is Sarah Goodall, the head of social business for EMEA at SAP. She'll give us a very interesting uh, overview of uh, employee advocacy programs and uh, teaching employees how to use uh, social media, particularly in a European environment where, of course, it's quite different than in the U.S. Uh, different countries have different preferred platforms, different uh, uh, behavioral and cultural norms, and someone who's got uh, all of EMEA to uh, to contend with uh, has certainly a very different set of issues than, than someone in a more homogeneous environment like this. But first, let's get on to a few news items we thought would be interesting uh, to discuss. Um, Eric, there's one you came up with that I thought was really interesting uh, regarding journalists and SoundCloud. Why don't you go over a summary of this? So one of the students at the Neiman Lab uh, had recorded for his final project a news story, a radio news story, and uh, delivered it to his instructor on SoundCloud. And uh, what he did was he used uh, works in the story that he didn't have copyright to, but he did use just a short 25-second snippet, and he did change the meaning of it because he used it in the context of a news story. And uh, SoundCloud sent him a note saying, look, we've removed it because it violates uh, copyright law. And, um, you know, he tried to come back and say, well, look, it's fair use. I've changed the meaning of it. I've used it in a news story. And they basically came back and said, look, you know, we just don't have the resources to deal this with this kind of thing. As far as the uh, Digital Millennium Copyright Act is concerned, if we get a takedown notice from a copyright holder, we must respect it. And I'd like to read you the end of uh, an article that was written by um, the uh, student that this happened to. His name, name is Adam Ragusea. And uh, he writes, um, I get it. I'm sympathetic. I'm a longtime SoundCloud fan and user. But this still really concerns me. There's been a lot of talk in recent years about how the Internet and social media in particular is the new public square where we exercise our free speech rights. And yet this new public square just isn't public. If you post content on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, or SoundCloud, you're on private property. The owner can step out the front door and shoo you away at any time. We are increasingly vesting our First Amendment rights in the hands of private companies. This, more than anything, is what scares me about Facebook's new deal with news organizations where it will host stories from the New York Times and others within Facebook itself rather than linking to nytimes.com from the Facebook news feed. We're going to face some pretty profound questions about how we exercise our rights in that environment. And so I thought I would put it to you, Paul, because I know you maintain a blog about the end of, uh, of newspaper, and I know that this is uh, you know, an ax that you've been grinding for many years. Are we pretty much cutting off our nose to spite our face if we rely solely on these social networks to not just get the uh, the audience, but also deliver the content and host the content as well? I, I, it's an excellent question. I think that the this SoundCloud example is, is a, a rather stark 
uh, example of the risks that we take when we trust our content to a third party to essentially adjudicate. And uh, the SoundCloud, uh, this is a very interesting story you passed along. Is the, the professor sort of came in and went to bat for his student uh, at SoundCloud. And one of the comments he got back was that, well, yes, this uh, item might have met the fair use provisions under U.S. copyright law, but SoundCloud, which is based in Europe, has an international audience. So essentially they were trying to, to uh, extrapolate and apply copyright laws worldwide. And of course, every country has different rules on copyright. So they're sort of taking a least common denominator approach, doing the safest thing, and excising this uh, 25 seconds or so of music that was included in the um, in the content. And, and you look at, you know, con in contrast to that, what NPR does. NPR uses a lot of music in its, in its uh, audio news programming, but of course they host that content, so they don't have to worry. They are the judge and the jury when it comes to, uh, to fair use. But if you're using a third-party uh, source and increasingly we have to do that. Small publishers in particular have to rely upon uh, uh, third parties and these these giants like uh, like Facebook uh, to to host their content. You're putting the, the fate of your content in somebody else's uh, hands. And I think yes, it is a a worrisome uh, trend. And and the uh, this deal between Facebook and uh, and the New York Times, the Washington Post, and, and several other publishers, uh, I think does raise concerns about uh, Facebook owning this information and essentially having the right to use it as uh, as it wishes. We're just we're hoping they'll do the right thing. Right, but it, it's it's specifically pertains to relying on private social networks to host your content. You wouldn't be in the same situation if you were hosting it on your own site. No, absolutely not. But you don't have the benefit of of the access to the audience on your own site. And the but you can because you you can move the link. You can, but the the fact is, if you post, uh, you know, example, uh, publishing on LinkedIn's new publishing platform. In my experience with that, I get far greater um, response, uh, far greater readership from uh, a content posted on the LinkedIn publishing platform than I do on my own blog, even if I promote that content through links on Twitter and LinkedIn and Facebook and, and wherever else. It's just there is that captive audience that LinkedIn can direct that audience toward my content. So there are some compelling reasons why publishers would want to use these existing social networks, meaning access to the audience. But the downside is you don't control what they're going to do with your content. We're just trusting them to do the right thing, wouldn't you say? Have you ever uh, used the LinkedIn publishing platform to run the intro and then let the jump lead over to your own site? I haven't tried that. Have you? I have. I've had some pretty good luck with that. But you almost have to write the intro to you know, build the suspense and tease whatever it is you're going to give them uh, to try to get them to click. You know, th that would be a great topic for a future show is to find someone who has who has uh, uh, you know killed it on the LinkedIn publishing platform and get some some uh, tricks for how to make that work because we are seeing some uh, some topics on LinkedIn generating a huge response uh, for people who don't have a big uh, a, you know a big name or a big presence. Um, but I, I've used it basically just for a few blog entries that I've reposted from elsewhere. But that's a whole a whole powerful platform in itself. That is a great idea. If there's anyone listening to this who's really taking advantage of LinkedIn to drive traffic to a destination website, let us know. We'd love to talk to you.
And if this has ever happened to anyone, uh, if you if you have copyrighted content that you put into that you've remixed or or mashed up in uh, on YouTube and had the experience of having that content just suddenly disappear without any notice, and I think that was one of the issues in this story, Eric, was that that SoundCloud didn't give this person any notice. They just uh, uh, unilaterally pulled that content down, and then if if you contacted them, they would give you an explanation. But does that trouble you at all that these that these actions are unilateral? Well, I mean, the truth is that's the way the Digital Millennium Copyright Act is written. You know, it, it's it's actually a fairly brilliant provision because what it says is uh, you can't shut down a social network for moving copyrighted information so long as uh, the social network takes down shared information um, at the request of a copyright owner if it's not approved. So they didn't think it through, and they didn't think, well, wait a minute, how if how does that takedown request work? Do they have to notify the person first? Is there some grievance process where you can contest and under fair use? Um, you know, none of that is baked into the DMCA. Uh, it's sort of related to another topic we want to talk about uh, this week, which is the acquisition, Sprinkler's acquisition of, of Get Satisfaction. And one of the issues in this, first of all, Sprinkler is uh, uh, is emerging, I'd say, as the uh, you know the big winner in social media monitoring. Uh, raised 46 million dollars recently on a, on a one billion dollar valuation. They call these unicorns now. These uh, these private companies that are are, are valued at over a billion dollars, and there are over a hundred of them, I understand, out there right now. Um, but the acquisition of of uh, Get Satisfaction gives them a, an entry into the customer feedback, the live customer feedback. Um, a market, and also some ownership over that process. And I think one of the interesting dimensions of this story is that, um, uh, you know, with Twitter uh, pulling, uh, uh, manipulating its APIs, uh, pulling Meerkat, Meerkat essentially out of the network uh, unilaterally, um, relying upon social networks to keep their interfaces open is a very risky strategy these days. And one of the things that Sprinkler is doing with this acquisition is buying themselves a customer feedback mechanism that already has an installed uh, base. It has a customer base. Uh, it has big-name customers like Procter & Gamble. And it buys them some uh, protection, really, against relying on third-party services. Would, would you say that's, uh, that's a, an issue for uh, companies trying to do customer feedback? I mean, it is an issue, but at the same time, I don't. I, you know, I've. For, have you ever gone to get satisfaction to air grievances? Well, no. I think I think get satisfaction is embedded in other websites, if I understand. It is. It's yeah. But have you ever actually used it? No, I've never used it as a consumer. I mean, I've heard about it many times, and as a lot of people talk about it, I know they're very vocal, and they're out there, and they've done very well. Um, but I don't know that as a strategy to hedging your bets against, um, you know, APIs closing down, it makes sense. Uh, I think it definitely makes sense for Sprinkler, uh, but ultimately I think Sprinkler is going to need to be acquired by a CRM outfit or they're going to run up against the same brick wall. And uh, who knows, maybe it'll be SAP who we're talking to today on the show, maybe it'll be Salesforce. But at some point I think these guys become – 
something that one of those big CRM providers is really going to want. Well, the call of customer satisfaction area is really interesting and it involves elements of, of uh, psychology and, and wisdom of crowds and, and mass psychosis, if you will. Um, the, and I did some work on this. Uh, my most my last book, Attack of the Customers, had a, a whole dimension of this customer feedback, um, how customer feedback works. And the idea behind Get, a, Get Satisfaction is capture customer feedback in a place that you own rather than sending them to you know, Yelp or, or Google Places or, or Foursquare or somewhere else to, to complain about you. Capture the feedback right there. And there are a lot of benefits to that. Uh, being able to identify problems in your supply chain before they uh, they show up somewhere else, being able to identify hit products uh, early on, but also interestingly, satisfy uh, feedback that is captured on your own site tends to be more positive than that in in uh, public sites, and and often remarkably so. So uh, there's some compelling reasons, you know, if you when you look at sites that use these customer feedback mechanisms and display the results in line with the products, very often the uh, the ratings are quite high, even though they may not be so high in uh, uh, you know in an independent site. Well, I mean, I, I, Salesforce at this point doesn't have an engagement dashboard. Um, you know, these guys are up against Hootsuite and um, up against Sprout Social in the uh, engagement dashboards uh, side of things. Uh, that's obviously a hot area if you're using social at a big you know, multilateral where there's a lot of different departments and issues need to be routed, but all those communications need to be programmed under one brand. Um, but again, I think if these guys don't somehow, you know, cross the bridge and link up with a CRM, ultimately I think they're going to, they're not going to have a valuable offering. And I'm actually surprised that we haven't seen Salesforce go further um, with their, uh, with their Salesforce marketing cloud and, you know, they acquired what Radiant Six a long, a fairly long time ago. Buddy Media. I don't hear that much about Radiant Six anymore. I know it's still out there, but it seems well. It's a phenomenal tool. I mean, I'll tell you, I, I rely on it for my intel, and I can. I've gotten really, really good at it. But again, you know, when it, when you want to get into the analytics, I mean, you can't do that manually. You need to be able to apply all algorithm, algorithms and filters to try to get meaning out of all that data. And uh, I, again, if you can't tie it up, you know, if you can't sort of sync up offline and online behavior, you don't really get any intel. Now, in terms of the, the whole notion of, you know, hey, people say nice things in your site, and well, clearly, I mean, if I if I have something bad to say, I don't want to say it on your site. I'm intentionally going to go somewhere else. So the idea that, you know, the research shows that people say nicer things on your site may be, you know, may not mean that they're only saying nicer things, just means that you know, they're intentionally saying that there and saying mean things elsewhere. Because what you find today is that if you leave bad criticism on the on the business's site that you're doing business with, they're going to remember that and they may hold that against you in the future. Uh, the psychology is uh, not clear to me why it works that way, but I remember in the course of, of researching the book, I came across one company. Uh, they were a flower delivery company. I don't, I don't even remember their name, so I'm not going to try to to uh, pinpoint them. But they had absolutely uh, horrible reviews on third-party rating sites. I mean, we're talking about one in five-star reviews, and and with with hundreds of people rating them this way, very very negative feedback. But 
when you went to their site, I don't know if they were using Get, Get Satisfaction or something else, the ratings were all on the four, four and a half out of five star. And and I even uh, remember speaking to someone, I think it was a bizarre voice about, you know, why, I think they used the bizarre voice platform. Why does this happen? And he said, this we see this all the time. Uh, it's one of the compelling reasons to host customer reviews is that the reviews become actually an effective marketing mechanism and people tend to leave only positive feedback. I don't know why, but your your uh, your theory may be the maybe the reason. Well, we should get on to our interview, but before we do, I just want to give a shout out to uh, to Krishna Day. Krishna Day is a, a longtime FIR listener uh, based in uh, England, and um, she has been doing some fantastic work around experimenting with both Periscope and Meerkat. And uh, I think we should put a couple of the links, <clears throat> some of the YouTube movies that she's made, some of these uh, tutorials and demos in the show notes. Because if you're looking to sort of mess around with these different channels and integrate them in an experiment, she's done some phenomenal work. Oh, I can't, so, wait, to see, can't wait to see what, uh, what marketing uses come out of, of live streaming. Me too. Well, our guest this week is Sarah Goodall, who is head of social business for EMEA at SAP, uh, the big uh, the big software company. And I met Sarah through a Social Media Today uh, webinar that we did about uh, about employee advocacy. And of course, SAP went. I've been around SAP for a long time. It's a company that went from being very very closed uh, in the 90s and the early 2000s to being really one of the most progressive users of social media uh, of, of any company, B2B or B2C, that I'm aware of. So Sarah has been uh, uh, at uh, SAP since uh, 2008, uh, Hitachi Data Systems before that, Glasshouse before that, so around the tech industry quite a while. Uh, Sarah, welcome to FIR B2B. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Um, we've talked a lot about advocacy on this program. We had Sharon Cross from HDS uh, on a previous program. We also had uh, Chris Boudreau, who's written a book on this. And so the topic is, is a particular interest. Um, it, it seems to me that employee advocacy in the U.S. must be relatively simple compared to launching a program like that in Europe with all the different rules, regulations, the, uh, the, the languages, the cultures. I mean, how do you get something like that off the ground? Yeah, it's, it's, it is quite different, actually, um, partly because you've got a language barrier as well. Um, you've also got uh, adoption of social tools in different countries. They do different different ways of doing business. Um, so, it, for example, um, in Western Europe, Facebook is considered very much a personal tool. So you wouldn't really have employees sharing business content on there. But if you go to more emerging markets like Africa or the Middle East or Russia, um, those guys live on Facebook. You know, it's an SME-driven market that's how they do business so it's a different tool but a different kind of audience so so understanding the language issues um, also understanding uh, the cultural issues how they use social media differently uh, are some of the key barriers I guess for for adoption of, of, of employee advocacy so they would just be some of the topics I would say so I'd be curious to know how do you convince say a Western European employee obviously you know the cultural, um, importance of privacy is something that's near and dear to the heart of most Western Europeans. How do you convince a Western European salesperson to go ahead and use their personal profile for social selling or for business? 
Yeah, so it's a really good question. And what we've done with our program is we've centered it very much around building a personal brand and the importance of doing that. So we've we've never talked about it in the context of, you know, this is SAP. We want you to uh, become sort of brand advocates for us. That's not been the direction of the program. It's all about being enabling the employee, giving them the tools to build a personal brand. And what we've done is we've actually sold the benefits of that to employees. Um, you know, why in this sort of digital working age, it's important to have a personal brand online. It's important to engage with customers online. So that's how we've positioned it. And, and certainly for the skeptics who sort of think, oh, no, that's, you know, that's my private network. It's just for me. Certainly in the sales industry, they really start to understand do you know what? We can't. This can't be a closed door, my personal network anymore. If I want to make my quota, I have to start thinking a bit more strategically about my my personal brand, my presence, my network, and start investing in time in that. So that that's been the sort of that's been the the approach that we've taken to employees is really enabling them, but in the context of their personal brand and why they need to build digital brands these days. So, so does that mean they stop sharing baby pictures or they stop celebrating? <laughs> Uh, musical artists that they might like or any sort of divisive choice that they might make that would alienate someone who doesn't have those same personal preferences? No, not really, because what, what we try and encourage people to do is we, we do encourage people to think, um, you know, sensibly about having a social brand online. So we do say, look, you know, be careful about what you share and the views. I mean, at the end of the day, you still work work for a company. So, you know, you still have the contract with the company. But at the end of the day, this is your own views. And what you don't want to look like is a robot. Um, and it's important to inject some personality into your in, into your everyday, you know, social interactions. So, yeah, sure, it's OK to share you know your favorite music and stuff because it just shows that there's a human behind the twitter account and it's not just a robotic um blasting thing out over twitter and automatic setting so um so no we encourage personality on social that's what makes it different <laughs> what what differences have you seen cultural differences have you seen in the different regions in which you operate on the uptake for this program or on people's willingness to to uh participate in social channels has it been pretty unanimously accepted across the region or are there certain pockets where people are more reserved oh that's a good question um i i would certainly pick out uh, the netherlands and italy as as quite fast adopters um certainly the dutch they're they're one of the biggest audiences per capita on linkedin anyway so it's one of I, when i talk to linkedin i know that that's one of their massive growth not growth markets but it's a very highly adopted market of linkedin In fact, so I've, i believe i've seen statistics that scandinavians are the most uh, connected uh, have the largest population representation on Facebook as a percentage of population. Yeah, so so that's very interesting because I mean I've lived in Norway for five years, so I've been I've been immersed into the Scandinavian culture. They're a very private people, so I am generalising here, but they definitely out of I was going to actually say out of all of the European markets, the Scandinavians are the most sort of uh, reserved about this because they they like to keep their personal networks personal and they don't really like to sort of move between the two a personal business divide. They need a lot of convincing. So actually, out of all the markets, they might be the well most connected, but they're probably the least, um, you know, in terms of open to using social networks for business. But I, I would certainly mark out sort of the Netherlands, uh, certainly Italy, and to some extent the UK as well. They're very keen, um, but probably Netherlands and Italy would be my 
my key sort of markets that I would pick out. Africa as well. Sorry, Africa and Middle East, high growth markets, hugely social, uh, mainly on mobile technology, certainly in Africa. Um, those guys are very big social adopters just by the nature of, of the, the, the market maturity that they're in at the moment. So from your standpoint, in terms of implementing social business across a, a broad swath of, of uh, uh, representatives in different countries, any generalizations you can make about how your approach from an implementation standpoint in terms of getting people in your company up to speed on social selling has changed from Europe to the Middle East to Asia? Um, I can't comment on Asia because I don't really get involved in Asia, but certainly um, – so Europe and Middle East uh, – yeah, I would say the further I would more divide it between um, emerging markets and mature markets. So I would say that the emerging markets they they have to be nimble. They they are high social adopters anyway. So just as a consumer rather than in business. So those markets just understand social. They get it. They use it in their day to day consumer life. Um, so so adoption there is is a lot higher and it's been. Um, I would say it's a lot faster. They they get it. They have to do it. There's no choice. Western Europe, you know, social networks have t- traditionally been for personal communication. So it's, it has been a little bit slower. You have to convince people. You've also got a generation of, oh, I have to be careful how I say this, but if you've got a generation of sales guys that have come from an old uh, old fashioned way of doing it, certainly in our industry, you know, I, I started out sort of 20 years ago. So I remember the whole RFP process and, you know, how you get the vendors in to pitch. Whereas these days it's all done very much on cloud. It's cloud solutions, very fast purchase cycles. People want to try and buy. Um, it's a complete, it's a digital way of selling. And that I think in the Western markets, they're having to shift the culture a little bit. So it's, it's a little bit more, it's a little slower in terms of the social business model than maybe in the emerging markets is what I would recognize. You use the term social selling uh, as the, the, the sort of the umbrella for the program. Is, in fact, is the program aimed primarily at salespeople or uh, is, it, uh, is it a more general um, uh, constituency? I mean, can you describe what the program looks like, the, the training looks like? Yeah, so we um, so we put a program together. The target audience is every employee, in my view. Every employee in this digital age is a potential salesperson for the company. So, you know, I, for me, I don't like to just pigeonhole the sales guys. However, um, within the social business model, salespeople are a, a component of that. And they require a different kind of training to, say, maybe somebody who works in pre-sales, to, say, maybe somebody who works in HR or marketing. So, um, so that's how we constructed it. We, we recognized that different audiences needed different levels of um, education. Um, you know, the sales guys are much more about how to build your networks, how to connect on a regular basis, how to stay more front of mind. Whereas uh, a, a pre-sales guy, you know, they're technical experts. They have a lot of knowledge. So in my view, those guys are, you know, they should be out there being influencers. They should be sharing some of that expertise and knowledge. So they require a different kind of level of social business. So that that's one way of um, dividing the program. But then, of course, you've got employees that are at different levels of maturity. So you've got some that don't get it. Why should I have a personal brand online? And then you've got some that really do get it. You know, they're, they're influencers already. So we have some of those already to name a few. Sven Deniken, Timo Elliott. Um, yeah, there's, we, we have a few there. Jonathan Becker, recognized influencers in the, in the market. So 
So you've got to kind of overlay it and it becomes quite complicated when you start overlaying the different levels of social maturity and employee base and the different functions and, and the requirements of the different training. So it becomes quite complex, but once you map it out, it's it's pretty good. So, How, how do you get it done? I mean, can you talk logistically about how you actually implement a training program that serves the needs of people with different levels of social business maturity? Do you actually get everyone in a room, make them all sit through the same pitch? Do you segment? Do you, do you test them? Is there a way to implement a program that meets the needs of each uh, user based on their maturity? And if so, is ed tech in there? Do you, do you leverage ed tech to get it done? So, yeah, so we what we did is we basically took an influencer and then we deconstructed what it meant to be an influencer online. And we basically mapped a, a path out, a logical path, because we and this was quite difficult to do. But we have tried to map out the individual stages of do this, then do that, then do that. So basically, we said to employees, if you follow this step by step process, you will absolutely get to the end goal. OK, so what we didn't want to do is just have a smattering of training anyone can do you know twitter 101 um this is how you use lists this is how we wanted to make it a logical process so people could very quickly see yeah okay i see where i am on the maturity map and that's where i need to start my training um and then throughout we have quizzes homework tests the whole learning model was actually based on we wanted it to be a social model so we actually used sap jam internally to create a community so everybody learned at the same time so it was all very web-based no classroom based uh, training it was 30 minute webinars it was Q&A sessions it was a community base that we've got now with 1200 employees where they're all sharing insights asking questions within the community and it's answering itself so we we wanted to create a social learning model because whilst they're learning in that model they're actually learning how to do social collaboration on, on, a, on a wider scale. So we were very keen to, to, to have a collaborative learning model internally, and that's, and that's what we've done. And obviously, there's a bunch of other resources we used as well in support of those webinars. So um, blog posts, lots of tools, lots of videos, techniques, and we wrapped a bunch of assets around each, each webinar module. But we, we took people on a, a logical step-by-step -step path um, through a training program to help them get to the end goal. Same. Can you talk a little bit about channels? I think for, for U.S. marketers, uh, Europe, is, is, your region is, is kind of uh, confusing to them because there are certain platforms that are popular in, uh, in, in certain uh, particular countries there that are not well known in the U.S. Are there uh, certain platforms that, uh, that, biz, that U.S. marketers should be aware of, North American marketers should be aware of if they're trying to reach people in you know, Germany, Italy and such that are, that are not familiar uh, here? Yeah, so uh, certainly in France, um, Vimeo is, a, is a, a, a video tool that's more popular to some extent than YouTube. So uh, Vimeo, I think, is may not be or recognized uh, globally. Um, certainly in Turkey, I believe, you know, we've got issues with Twitter and um, to some extent YouTube. But certainly Twitter, you know, that's not a used platform since all the uprising a couple of years ago. It's, uh, it's quite difficult to use that now. Um, if you're looking 
looking at business audiences and you're looking at German speaking markets, then Zing, uh, X-I-N-G, is the equivalent of LinkedIn. Um, and that by far dominates the German speaking market. So it's it, I, I, I'm watching that in anticipation, actually, because I expect I, I see more of my German colleagues moving to LinkedIn. So I don't know what's what's happening here. But Zing is by far the preferred platform for business to business in um in, in the German speaking markets, Austria, Switzerland, Germany, um, more so than LinkedIn. So they, they would be the ones that I would call out. And then if you step into Russia, you're getting into all sorts of kinds of channels. So um, that I, I can't remember off the top of my head, but it's worth exploring. But they, they would be the ones that I would call out. So there are a, a host of um, rules and regulations in the United States, uh, many of which were implemented before Facebook existed that now govern how you can and can't use social media lawfully for business. Um, and the, this market is just starting to come up to speed on um, implementing some sort of protections um, so that uh, uh, employees can comply with U.S. rules and regs. Now, you're obviously responsible for uh, marketing to you know a much broader constituency from different countries, all of which have different laws. How do you balance uh, risk on the compliance tightrope? Yeah, it's it's a really good question because, um, you know, certainly in, in Germany, and I don't know the, the specific laws around this because we treat Germany, German-speaking markets as a slightly different region, but there are quite sort of stringent rules around, you know, what employees can do online and what they can't, certainly when it comes to blogs and things. So employees are very sort of resistant and they're a little bit sort of hesitant about what they do. So if we're talking about compliance from that perspective, certainly the German, German market is is a little bit restricted. Um, generally speaking, the, the the general rule that we have for employees is, um, you know, we have guidelines. So this is how you behave on social. It's just social etiquette. This is how you should operate. Um, but then we also do have policies. So we have very um, clear policy. And the details of that policy is pretty much what you see in most most policies. But the way I say is when you when you signed a contract with SAP, um, it's pretty much the same sort of thing. You know, you'd, you would never share confidential information online. Um, you would never share internal information online. So, you know, just think sensibly. You just wouldn't do that stuff um, if it weren't, you know, for public consumption. So that's that's the guidelines we give employees. On the flip side, uh, when you're looking about uh, compliance in terms of, you know, what articles to share and things. This is where a, a tool like Dynamic Signal could really help. Um, and there are other tools on the marketplace as well. And I know one tool on the marketplace is specifically good for this because I met somebody who worked for a, uh, I think it was a pharmaceutical organization who are heavily regulated and, and financial institutions. So they need a very clear path of content approval before it gets released to employees to share. Um, so you can set those sort of uh, contingency things within the content sharing platform. So employees will only get content that they know is okay to share with their audiences. Um, so on, on that side, you know, on that flip side, that's how compliance can be um, regulated, if you like, from an employee advocacy point of view. Well, Sarah, obviously a very uh, a complex uh, environment that you face over there, but you, you seem to have a good handle on it. And uh, <laughs> SAP continues to be uh, an innovator that many B2B companies uh, look to for, uh, for inspiration. So thank you so much for sharing some of your tactics and tools today with us. You're very welcome. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for inviting me. 
Great talking to you. You too, Eric. Cheers. Some things to think about. If you're an international company and you want to roll out a social media training advocacy program uh, worldwide, uh, very different environment in some of these uh, regions. So uh, thank you to Sarah. Uh, Eric, what's new? Uh, what's coming up for you? Well, we've launched a new uh, seminar with the Public Relations Society of America called the Social Media Managers Workshop. Um, it's a two-day workshop. Uh, we're launching it in Las Vegas. It'll be April 29th and 30th. In Las Vegas, if you want uh, the details, you can go to bit.ly forward slash social media managers workshop. And the course is designed to help you learn to sell the value of social media to pretty much anyone, whether they're digitally literate or not. Um, we cover improving search visibility, uh, performing applied social media tasks uh, without relying on tactical people, uh, use of free and premium social monitoring dashboards, um, we're going to cover social media crisis prevention. We're going to look at WordPress, iTunes, SoundCloud, Instagram, Vine, Ustream, and more. Oh, actually, we're, we're doing Meerkat and Periscope as well. So if you're interested, again, it's bit.ly forward slash social media managers workshop. Wow, you are on the bleeding edge with uh, Periscope and, and Meerkat, which I haven't even used yet because I'm on Android. Uh, I have, will be speaking at the um, AIIM Executive Leadership Council meeting in Washington, June uh, Second, uh, talking about collaborative workspaces and the use of social tools behind the firewall. And uh, who knows, maybe Slack is the killer app that's finally going to make that happen, another unicorn company. Uh, and continuing with uh, with my uh, social media training with Profitecture, training B2B companies. So uh, with that, we will see you in a couple of weeks. This is Paul Gillen saying so long. See you guys. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to FIR B2B, a bi-weekly podcast about B2B marketing. FIR B2B is brought to you in association with Lawrence Reagan Communications, serving communicators worldwide for more than 35 years. You'll find more information at www.reagan.com. That's R-A-G-A-N. FIR B2B is part of the FIR Podcast Network, a series of business podcasts founded by Neville Hobson and Shell Holtz. The anchor podcast in the network is the Hobson and Holtz Report, a weekly show presented since January 2005. For information about FIR, to see show notes for the podcasts, and to subscribe, visit www.forimmediaterelease.biz. You can also subscribe via iTunes and other podcast directories. We welcome your comments about FIR B2B. Join the conversation in the FIR community on Google+. Look for the FIR podcast community or email us at FIRcomments at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.